welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is CMOS MD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Evie Cunningham. Dr. Cunningham is Chief of Virtual Care and Digital Health at Providence, where she leads the Providence Telehealth and Virtual Care teams for eight enterprise service lines, virtual care project management, technology, and implementation services. She also leads digital health incubations, clinical technology product development, the clinical digital content team, and clinical technology strategic partnership strategy in collaboration with the Providence corporate development team. Dr. Cunningham is also board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and continues active clinical practice. Dr. Cunningham, Evie, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It is so great to have you on the show today. You've had one of the most diverse careers I've ever seen from <laughs> practicing and leading OBGYN to your current role as chief of virtual care. To start the conversation though, I wanna go way back. What got you into medicine in the first place? Well, thanks, Alan. And I just want to point out that I do still practice a little bit. Actually, I still identify myself as a physician first before everything, because it really is such a deeply ingrained part of my identity. But yeah, why did I go into medicine? Well, my mom became a lawyer. My grandmother was a lawyer and then a judge. And my aunt was a lawyer and then a judge. And when I went to my mom and said I wanted to become a lawyer, she was like, can you please find something else to do. <laughs> but realistically, I didn't know that I wanted to become a doctor. I wasn't one of those people that was like born wanting to become a doctor. But when I went to undergrad, I did major in chemistry and had a minor in biology and I got really involved in science. And during my freshman, sophomore year of college, I read this book called Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom by Christiane Northrup, who is an OBGYN physician. And I just absolutely fell in love with women's health and she brought the science together with this holistic view of women's health, integrating the emotional, spiritual, and behavioral aspects of health with the clinical and scientific aspects. And I knew after I read that book that I was going to become an OBGYN. And that's really what I did. That's what I thought I would. I thought I was going to be like Christiane Northrum, you know, 20 years later, writing my next version of her book. But here I am doing something completely different yeah. today. No, that's so cool. And and you you know you still could write a book, and it would be completely warranted for digital health. So during COVID, you got really involved with strategic partnerships and technology side of healthcare. And so, what's kind of the story? How did you go from OBGYN into technology? What was your foray there? Well, I didn't go straight from being an OBGYN into technology. What happened was I got involved in clinical leadership. So, you know, it started out, I was doing full clinical practice and I was in my previous organization, which was Common Spirit at the time. And, you know, I got invited to be on the committee and then, hey, do you want to be a medical director? And then, you know, push came to the shove. I was leading a very large portion of the large multi-specialty medical group there. I was chairing their executive compensation committee. I was leading patient experience for the enterprise. And Providence came calling and invited me to interview for a chief medical officer role over one of their medical groups. So I went ahead and did that. And I became the chief medical officer of about 350 provider group, 25 specialties, five GME programs. So it was a large multi-specialty group in the Olympia Southwest Washington market. And I've always been a huge advocate of care transformation. So if you look at my whole history, like from when I was even at Common Spirit, I was always pushing the envelope on like trying to get us to practice differently. Like we launched midwifery practices in five different hospitals while I was leading the women's team there. We expanded our robotic surgery program. Like we were always trying to kind of push the envelope and evolve. 
and maybe it wasn't necessarily technology, but it was care transformation. And so when I went to be the chief medical officer of the medical group, the same type of thing would happen. We were seen as a very innovative medical group. And I was very bullish on virtual care. I think we had the only pilot in ambulatory care for virtual visits when COVID hit in 2020. There was, just wasn't, it wasn't happening very broadly across the system. And I was like, this is the future, <laughs> even though at that time people thought I was crazy. And so when COVID hit, what I found was Providence is seen as a very innovative company. We have partnerships with all these technology organizations, especially like Microsoft, which had been recently announced at that time. And I was representing this large cohort of physicians and providers who were so frustrated. I mean, they were just so incredibly frustrated with care delivery, with the experience. So like all this great thoughts about technology was not trickling down to what really needed to be fixed at the point of care. And their voice wasn't being heard. It was because there wasn't really anybody with that practical operations experience representing the technology strategy at the time. Like it was very like siloed. And so I knew there was like a huge opportunity with technology to make it better and ease the way. And I wanted to represent that. I knew enough to say like, I, I know that there's a there there. We just need to have the right stakeholders and the right focus on developing the right solutions. So I kind of hustled my way in. I met my current boss, his name's Was Rashid, and he came from Microsoft. And so what we had found was we had brought in a lot of these executives from tech and it was like, they're gonna come in and they're gonna fix us. And like, it doesn't exactly work that way. But he came in and he came from tech and he gave me an audience and he listened to me and he was like, okay, let's see what you can do. Let's bring you in and integrate you with some of my teams. Let's have you give them advisory support. And so I started doing that while I was still the chief medical officer and incubating MedPearl, which I know we'll talk about soon. And after about six to nine months of doing that, he offered me a full-time job. I became the chief medical officer of the corporate development team, essentially. The role didn't exist. Like I basically had to like create my own job description and like there was a lot of ambiguity and make it up as I go. But I like rolled up my sleeves and I'm like, I'm going to learn everything I can about technology. I was sometimes writing down words when I was sitting in meetings because I'm like, I don't know what an ETL is or like, you know, there were just things that I didn't know because I didn't come from that background. But I learned it on the job and really leaned in and here we are today and i would say technology is a huge part of my role but my clinical operations experience and my clinical expertise is extremely valuable in me being able to translate that with both leadership and with my constituents you know I mean, what i love about your story there was that you didn't wait to be asked to do something so you know some folks might say well i have to be tapped on the shoulder first before i could get my hands dirty in the technology or i would have to be given the title first before i had the right to get involved but you said hey like i see some problems here i'm just gonna like roll my sleeves and just do stuff and then people took notice and said hey like she's really passionate she knows what she's doing let's just give her a shot and then you did a really great job with it so i think that's just a really great lesson for people like you don't have to wait to be given the opportunity if you see a problem you just go take initiative and solve it i think that's an, an awesome example so today, you know, as chief of virtual care and digital health at Providence, you have this huge portfolio, hospital at home, virtual nursing, a bunch of other things. And one of the things I've heard you talk about is how you've laid out, you know, three really clear priorities that drive your digital health roadmap that gets people on the same page. Do you mind kind of unpacking those three priorities and how you use that to get alignment in such a large system? 
<laughs> just so you know, I was the chief medical officer of the corporate development team, and I did not have operations under me the first year, year and a half that I was in Wasif's org. And in fact, it was last year, about a year and a couple of months ago that, that he came to me and said, hey, listen, we're going to have the whole telemedicine, virtual care portfolio report under you. And I was like, oh, man, I was enjoying not having any direct report. <laughs> Because I had been deep in operations before that and kind of enjoyed sort of being like able to dream and build cool stuff. And now all of a sudden I was like being handed this org and I knew enough to know that I understood what was in the portfolio, but I didn't know like the nitty gritty details. And I think there was also like a lot of fear from their perspective of like, who is this person that we now report up to and does she value what we're doing? And what I found was we had been spending several years, six, seven years at Providence, even pre-COVID, building some really amazing and scaled telemedicine programs that were mostly inpatient focused, but were very innovative and had a tremendous amount of value. But there was a lack of appreciation and understanding across the system about like what value they were bringing to the system, what problems they were solving. And so after I was able to sort of look under the hood and I did what you call like an upper and lower endoscopy procedure on that org before we determined exactly what we were going to do with it. Like, do we keep this? Do we close any of these down? Do we expand them? Do we grow them? Like those were all the questions being asked. I was like, whoa, there's some really amazing and valuable things in here. There's also some things that aren't growing very rapidly or just haven't had uptake and maybe maybe we don't continue those. But I would say 90% of the portfolio was just phenomenal work. And I needed to be able to translate back to the finance folks speaking their love language, the ops folks, the clinical folks speaking their love language of like, what are we solving with these programs? And then how are we going to prioritize what we build going into the future? Because there had been a lot of like, what I would call skunk works, which were like little innovations where they were trying things out, but they never got a lot of volume. And it's like, we don't have time for that. Like, really, we, we don't. Our team is going to go for scale and impact and we're going to measure that impact. And so what we did was problem identification. Like what are the biggest challenges facing the health system today? In some cases, I would say large, big health systems, we're facing existential crises to some extent. The finances for many of our, our the health systems across the U.S., especially nonprofit, are not going in the right direction. We have major pressures being put on us. And so how can my team's programs, transformational programs, address those things that are really affecting us from an existential crisis perspective? And so the three things that we focused on are, okay, workforce shortage and burnout. Everybody talks about this, but how are we actually creating impactful services, products, strategies that we can measure that are affecting workforce shortage and burnout? How do we measure that ROI? The second is hospital capacity and throughput. Nobody is building brick and mortar hospitals. We do not have a ho enough hospitals in this country. We do not have enough beds in this country and nobody's building hospitals. Very few hospitals are going up and we are going to get slaughtered when all the Medicare patients age in. And so how do we come up with digital virtual ways beyond the four walls of the hospital to create capacity? That's what we're addressing and that's what we're measuring. And then the last is around 
I call it patient retention or care coordination. But at the end of the day, it's like we're getting our lunch eaten by all of these for-profit entities that are going after the commercial payer mix that's like the cream that helps subsidize our mission, that helps us take care of the poor and vulnerable populations. And we cannot have further disintegration or fragmentation of care or fragmentation of our payer mix. Like We need to defend that payer mix by creating digital first experiences or creating virtual first experiences that many of our patients, especially in the like millennial generation are seeking, like where they don't even have the time want to talk to a doctor. They just want to chat with them. Like we need to like offer that experience for them as well. And so those are the three areas that we have really focused on. And I'm happy to go into like which programs sort of address which things. And there's other issues like we need to transition to value-based care. There's obviously quality, which is like, you know, we're measuring that no matter what. But those three buckets that I just mentioned, workforce shortage and burnout, hospital capacity, throughput, and patient retention, that's where we sort of align all of our programmatic priorities. I love that. Well, maybe a, a good segue is I know one of your key initiatives that I'm, I'm guessing relate to capacity and throughput has been this RPM remote monitoring program you've led for chronic care in pop health. And I think one of the unique things we've heard about that story is, you know, some organizations I think are just leveraging a pure tech platform and having their own staff do all of the monitoring and, and care support. But I believe with the startup you've partnered with, you've leveraged both your tech, but also I think a remote nursing team to kind of act as an extension of your own in-house clinical team. What spawned that unique approach and what are the big things you learned from that experience? Yeah, and it's not just nursing. It's providers, pharmacists, behaviorists. It's a whole care team that is an extension of our team. From my perspective, the technology when it comes to remote patient monitoring is not the issue. There's so many remote patient monitoring vendors out there. There's so many little gadgets and doodads and things that people can bring home. You can even like, you know, I'm very motivated by my Apple Watch that I recently had to do my steps. To, to, to motivate people's behaviors. It's not the technology that's the issue. It's the people. We don't have our clinicians, and this goes back to that first thing, that workforce shortage and burnout. If I go to my primary care docs and I'm like, oh my God, this is so great. There's this platform that can do remote monitoring and you can send the patient home with the blood pressure cuff and then they can measure their blood pressure like three times a day and they're like, you know, the, the eyes of the primary care doc and the nurse who's sitting next to that person is going, oh my God, who's going to like take in all that information? Who's going to process all that information? Who's going to respond to that information? They can't even respond to the number of inbox messages they're getting today. The last thing they want is more data that they have to ingest. And yes, it's a better way of being able to know what's going on with your patient, but we don't have the staff to be able to support that. And so when this vendor came to us and said, we will extend your care team. And oh, by the way, we can do it in such a way that we will be thoughtful about the way we build. We will be thoughtful about the way we organize the services, the type of devices so that it's economical. Because that's the other thing is like, we couldn't go with a company that then we like lose money on because we don't have a lot of value-based care contracts. We have mostly fee for service. So they were able to come to us. They put skin in the game. We put skin in the game and they extend our care team and they help us co-manage these patients. 
And it's turned out to be a really great partnership. We're starting to scale them and expand in other parts of the health system. We were waiting for the electronic health record integration before we did that because that is super critical if you want to scale is that you have that EHR integration from a workflow perspective. But there's a lot of interest. Providence is a beast. I mean, we are seven state footprint, eight states if you count Idaho, where we do have some programmatic support, especially in our telemedicine programs. 10,000 providers, over 4 million patients. We have our own health plan. We're very heterogeneous. So I will say that my guess is that they will be one of maybe two or three platforms that we do this with because they probably won't be what every single location in the entire system wants. But I would say that they're going to be one of the predominant solutions because of the ease with which you're able to stand up the program and support the clinicians. And the clinicians see the value because they're like, wow, they're catching things I wouldn't have otherwise caught. They're putting my patient in guideline-directed medical therapy for CHF when I never would have otherwise been able to tinker with them. And go back to like my roots and go back to why I thought this would work and this would be okay. In 2011, when I was working as an OBGYN, taking full OB call, you know, 24 hours, sometimes 56 hours on the crazy weekends where we would have to cover a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I was a new mom, husband was a surgeon, trying to balance everything. The hospital came in and said, hey, we have this program we want to bring in called OB Hospitalist Group. And basically what they did was they brought in a team of OBGYNs that staffed the labor and delivery unit 24-7, did triage, sometimes could labor your patients. So then you didn't always have to do the laboring all day long and just come in and do the delivery. Or they could sometimes do the delivery if you had a recital for your kid or like, you know, we're on vacation, they could do the delivery for you. And they basically acted as an extension of us. And that's how we presented them to the patients patients, I said, I might not be at your delivery. We have this other group that's an extension of your team. And when they were first introduced, everybody threw tomatoes at them and said, there's no way we're going to do that. And our patients will revolt. And guess what? It was the most popular program <laughs> once we launched and expanded to like three other hospitals. And so the concept of partnering with other entities to extend your capacity and extend your care team it's not just a technology thing. It's part of care transformation. And at the end of the day, we provided safer care by having that model. We had an in-house 24-7 OBGYN who could respond very quickly and our quality improved. And I can guarantee that I think we're going to see the exact same thing happening with Cadence. The other thing I will say about Cadence that we haven't completed yet in our final analysis, but we've done a whole evaluation of being able to put people in better blood pressure control, guideline-directed medical therapy, better diabetes control. But we're also measuring the impact on total cost of care and readmission. And their initial partners have shown that they've reduced readmissions for the initial cohorts of patients that they've had, which goes back to capacity in the hospital, right? You can reduce readmissions. You're reducing the volume of unnecessary patients that need to go to the hospital and you're backfilling with patients who really need to go. I love that. And I think to your point, it sounds like we're seeing a, a cultural shift where maybe decades ago, there was this very sacred one physician, one patient relationship. No one else is really that involved. 
and maybe both parties liked it back then, but now we're in a world where actually we have to shift towards team-based care because this one-to-one thing is not sustainable. And, and to be fair, like when I think about what the ideal primary care experience would be for me as, as a as a patient or as a consumer, I don't think I need to always be talking to only a physician every single time. Maybe it's a nurse practitioner, a PA or another extender who can actually get involved first, escalate as needed to my primary care physician. And I think that same TBS care model, to your point, can extend to all kinds of other use cases. It might take a little bit more time to get both patients and providers comfortable with this shift, but it sounds like from a workforce point of view, it's almost inevitable. We don't really have a choice. We have to to build out what it means to do yeah. teammate care. And we've had a long history of it in women's health because of midwifery practice. So I grew up being trained in my intern year by midwives and like learning the stratification of care and how you kind of separate out. And I do the surgical things and the, I mean, it's a little bit harder to kind of parse that out in primary care, but There's no reason that you can't evaluate and adopt some of the principles that you find in many other specialties that have these team-based care models and apply that to any other specialty, including primary care. Totally. So, Evie, another really unique thing about you, you're not only a health system leader, but you're also a digital health founder with MedPearl. So MedPearl is basically leveraging AI to bring specialist knowledge to primary and urgent care. It's going to lead to higher quality treatment plans and appropriate referrals. I'm curious, though, what's the origin story for MedPearl? How did you get started there? You're already in such a busy practice and leading the whole medical group. How did that come about? Well, remember how I was talking about how there was a lot of people from tech and a lot of people interested in tech right when COVID hit and everybody was trying to solve all these different problems. And and I didn't really feel like the voice from operations was necessarily being heard. Kind of goes back to that point. And what I found was like there was internal, you know, this happens in every health system, whatever big health, there's, there's sort of some internal turfy stuff or internal competition for like, well, I want to be in charge of the virtual visit strategy and I want to be in charge of this and I want to be in charge of that. And I was like, I'm going to go after solving a problem that nobody's trying to solve. So I don't fall into landmines, which I did go into landmines anyways, but I was like, I'm just going to go after something that like, informatics and the IS people aren't solving and like there's plenty of problems to solve so I'm just going to go after something that I know is like a huge problem and this problem with referrals was like something you heard as a chief medical officer or even as like a physician leader you hear it all the time the the specialist physicians complain I get all these referrals for patients that I don't need to see it's clogging up my schedule Most of these patients aren't even surgical. Why are they coming to me? Primary care doesn't know how to send me the right patient. They're not working the patients up. And then on the flip side, you would talk to the primary care and they were so frustrated with the specialist. I don't know what the specialists want. I send the patient to this specialist, the specialist bounces them back, then I have to send them another specialist. The patient is so super frustrated and pissed off. And this like problem was so clear and evident and you would like hear it all the time and then you would talk to administration or leadership and they're like oh well let's solve it by creating a clinical network framework or like who does what that's not the problem the problem is a clinical problem right the only way the problem is going to be solved is with clinicians getting involved in solving it because the operators they'll do the best they can but they don't know what the clinical logic and the clinical expertise or the clinical intelligence is needed to create those pathways. And so 
I had a couple peers and colleagues that we were super passionate about this problem. And we had a meeting with Microsoft because Microsoft, we just had our partnership with Microsoft. And they kept coming to us saying like, well, why don't you use this application for this or this application for that? And I was like, stop trying to tell us to use things that are already made that don't fit into our workflow and don't solve our problem. And they're like, well, tell us about what your problems are. And so I brought like this team of like doctors that were like primary care and specialists. And I was just like vomit all over these poor Microsoft people like, and tell them about the referral problem. And they just went on and on and on. And these Microsoft people were like, oh my gosh, wow, let us come back with some ideas. So they came back with a couple ideas of how to solve the problem. But what they suggested was to do the chat bot which all of us were like, at that time, this was like 2020, we were like, oh my God, a chatbot, like how cool could that be, right? And so they kind of gave us like the idea of thinking differently about how you deliver information to the point of care. Now, the EMR is not clinically intelligent. This is what people always say, well, why isn't this in the EMR? The EMR does not have knowledge inside of it. The EMR is like this massive, 200 door filing cabinet where all these different files are put away and then you have to pull all the files out and organize them so that they make sense to you as a clinician. They don't organize it for you around clinical context. So we knew that 50% of referrals that were going to specialists had opportunities for improvement, meaning the patient went to the wrong specialist or the wrong specialty or the wrong level of urgency. The patient didn't need to see the specialist at all, like 20 or 30% of the time, they just didn't even need to see the specialist. Uh, but the primary care doc didn't have the right information to really manage that patient right in the moment. And then we also knew that there was a large opportunity to improve the workup, meaning if the patient gets sent to the ENT doctor for sinusitis, chronic sinusitis, like getting the right type of CT scan and an allergy test on the way can speed up their workup, right? And so there were a lot like all these missed opportunities. And so we knew that if we solved that problem, that there was a huge ROI associated with access. We had six month wait times for neurology and rheumatology and some of the practices even like closing and not like taking any new patients because they're just like, we can't take any more new patients because like we have no capacity. I mean, that was how bad it was. And it was getting, it's getting worse because of the shortage of physicians and because of all the Medicare patients like putting pressure on. So we're like, well, if we can solve that care transition problem between primary care and specialty care, we could open up a lot of access. And like, we need to make sure that we do it in a way that is supportive to primary care and doesn't feel like it's disciplinary or creating hard, hard stops or, or frustrating. So after the concept of the chatbot came to life, we decided to take that and separately work with Tegria, which is our technology and solutions company that's an adjunct of Providence and partner with them to design a solution around the end users and then build it out with an engineering team. So I ended up well, I did build my own bot myself and piloted it and stuff like that. But then once I got the support from doing that, then we actually got like funding to get a team to build it out. And so that's how MedPearl was born. We have leveraged almost like what I would say, like a hive of 10,000 clinicians from every specialty you can imagine across Providence to develop the knowledge base. And then we use a feedback mechanism within the product to continuously iterate on that knowledge base. 
So if you can imagine in the past when a specialist was like, hey, when you send a patient to me for hearing loss, here's the workup I want you to do. And they send a PDF document or an email and then the primary care doc can't talk back to it or can't respond like and then it like sits on a bulletin board and becomes obsolete after a year what we've done is we've like curated all of that content stuck it into a platform that is continuously managed and updated and refined based on feedback from the end users we then launched what something we called contextualization in august of this year which not only surfaces the knowledge, but it also surfaces the relevant patient data in the context of that, which is pretty next gen because right now, if I'm a clinician and I wanna go look something up, like I have to look up some information be like, what do I do with this patient that I think might have secondary hypertension or whatever, what's the workup? I have to go into a separate application. And then it says, oh, these are all the you know, lab tests or data points. And then I have to go back into the chart to say, well, did they have any of those things done? Now it goes, whoop, pulls all of that together. So it's like organized around the way we think. We have over 600 conditions now in the library curated, which is 95% of what a primary care doc does. And we've contextualized over 20% of the content as well, which has really seen a lot of the usage just take off now that the contextualization is live. That's really been a game changer for the product. It's awesome. You know, one of the things we hear a lot about is how the technology has to fit within the clinical workflow. So I'm curious, like, what was the biggest learning you had about maybe an assumption you made about how it would work in the clinical workflow, then you realized you were totally wrong and had to change course? Does anything come to mind? Yeah. Yeah, so I didn't kind of go into the full origin story, but Microsoft kind of gave us an idea about a chatbot. We actually, I built the chatbot myself on Microsoft Teams in an application called Power Virtual Agent, which is a no-code application. And then they sort of like consulted with me as I built it. And we had this knowledge base that we had curated that was sitting on a Word document. I remember one of the internal medicine doctors saying to me, that Word document is 80 pages of gold because it's all the knowledge, the specialty expertise knowledge around referral guidance, but he said it's not useful in its current format, right? So we transformed it and put it into this chat bot. And I actually got 40 docs to pilot that little <laughs> bot that I built on the love weekend. It. I love it. And they were so gracious. I mean, it was like really cool because I had like this team of just champions. I mean, I wasn't even paying any of these people. They just were beating the drum because they felt so passionate about this problem and knew that there was potential in the way we were trying to solve it. But it did not fit well into the workflow because you couldn't launch it from Epic. So you had to go into Microsoft Teams, which wasn't always available on the thin clients in the exam room. So then you'd have to go back to your desk. And so we did a lot of like focus groups and usability kind of interviewing. Of course, I had no idea what usability testing was at the time when I was doing this. I was like, oh, let's just go interview all the pilot testers. But they basically were like, it has to be launchable from Epic. It has to integrate from Epic. It has to have single sign-on. Like all of these things that of course make so much sense, but when you're like first starting to like build out an innovation, you may not think about. And so our roadmap has really been driven by feedback from our champions and from our end users. So we have what we call a product strategy and advisory group where we have 19 clinicians and they come religiously. It used to be monthly, but now it's every other month. And we go through on MedPearl, we talk, we, they vote on features, they prioritize features they want us to build out. 
They give us feedback on UX design of like, like just recently we did a vote on changing where the search bar is, you know? And so we are learning and prioritizing both the workflow things, the UX design, the features roadmap based on usability feedback from our end users. And I think that's the best way to do it. It's like a jobs to be done approach is really kind of the way that we've approached the, the product. That's a, but by getting your your chatbot, which is kind of like an MVP out there, the the reaction you got lets you know you're on the right track. Okay, like, is it ever just ignored that topic, that chatbot? Then like, okay, maybe I don't have something. But the fact that you yeah. people, hey, like, I want this, but I just need it, you know, better fit to my workflow. You're like, okay, I'm on to something here. I have a starting point. So that's really. Yeah. And we have, like I said, SSO worked brilliantly. It took us a little while to get that completely worked out on every device. We have contextualization and you launch it from Epic. There's a but like a button in Epic that you can launch the application from. So all of that has been really great and has helped with adoption. We have almost 7,000 users of clinicians and our stickiness is really impressive. So physician stickiness, meaning like going back in and using again and again is 60% for the physicians. And then it's almost 70% for the PAs and nurse practitioners. So really great provider uptake and reuse. Yeah, that's awesome. Since becoming a founder yourself, has that changed your perspective at all, working with other startups outside of Providence or even within Providence and your own teams? Yeah, I mean, I think there's other innovative work happening at Providence. There's a product called ProvAria, which is using an LLM to help organize and categorize patient messages, which we're actually going to do an integration with as well. And that team, they're on the IS side and analytics side. They come to me sometimes and just want to like spitball and think about ideas about like, how do we think about this as a product, both internal and external? So I think there's some really good collaboration happening when it comes to like the internal startup mentality within Providence. Some of those, you know, initial barriers have been broken down and, and people seem to really want to be working together. And then I would say that like, yeah, I mean, it's it's cool being on the on the end of like being a buyer, you know, to some extent or the partner deal maker and working with startups or other companies about road mapping or how we were going to do that. And then also being like a founder myself, we haven't, you know, externalized MedPearl. That is the plan eventually to commercialize it, but we have so many benefits of it being an internal product today. It's hard to figure out when the right timing is going to be for that to happen. Yeah. Well, Eddie, something else that led to the development of MedPearl, I think, was international support. And just recently, I think earlier this month, you were in India connecting with folks from the Providence Global Center. Can you tell us more about that initiative? And then also just how you're able to collaborate globally to get something done together? A lot of early morning <laughs> <laughs> with a text print, right? I think there was like a three or four month period where I like started at 6.30 or 7 a.m. every day. My gosh. But yeah, we have a Providence Global Center where we have over a thousand caregivers for Providence. Our CIO, BJ Moore, he was really passionate about making sure that we have that kind of a muscle for our health system. That was his vision. And I think it was the right one to allow us to be able to innovate. I think that makes us unique in, in many ways. But anyways, we started working with them first with the telemedicine projects. We have a, a provider portal product 
that they were supporting. And then when MedPearl, you know, when we decided to go from pilot last year to full scale across Providence, my boss said, hey, listen, I think we need to start thinking about how we do engineering a little more economically because we were working more with like a vendor model for engineering and it just wasn't long-term sustainable. It was great to get us started. But uh, we started moving most of our engineering assets to the Providence India team earlier this year. So we have a couple of onshore engineers, but for the most part, the majority of that muscle. And we've been able to expand our capabilities as a result of that and move more quickly because we have more bench strength in being able to do that. So I don't do as much engagement directly with the India team. I used to be very involved in all of the engineering and product sprints. I was kind of like the chief product officer at the early stages of MedPearl. But as my responsibilities and portfolio of work has grown, I've had to hand off some of those responsibilities, obviously, to other stakeholders on the team. It's actually really sad because one of my favorite things to do was build algorithms and content within MedPearl. And I've become much farther and farther away from being able to be as directly involved in the day-to-day operations. I'm sure it's amazing to see how far it's come. And I mean, it's great to know that even if for some reason you can't be as involved at some point in the future, it's taking a life of its own. It's going gonna, it's gonna to keep going no matter what, which is really, really cool. I did also want to ask you about, you know, last, I think it was last month now, I did see you on stage at Health. And one of the things that you said was you were excited by technology that helps providers just get rid of this, I'll call it, quote unquote, stupid stuff in healthcare so that clinicians have more time to spend with patients on, I guess, the important stuff. I'm kind of curious, like lately, like what stands out to you as some of the the stupid stuff that, gosh, technology really should be able to get rid of? Yeah, I mean, I, I think MedPearl is one thing that uh, is helping get rid of some of the stupid stuff, which is missed opportunities. I mean, that referral optimization and referral hygiene. But some of the other things that I think about are patient inbox messages. I mean, the the clinicians have just been completely overwhelmed with the amount, the volume of messages. And there is a lot of opportunity, I think, with uh, now with generative AI and LLMs. Obviously, it has to be done in in a responsible way. But I see a huge opportunity going into the future for auto drafting, pre-drafting, you know, many of the responses, saving clinicians time not only in helping draft, but also prioritize. You know, one of the things I remember a couple of years ago, a year, year and a half ago, I remember the clinicians saying, we were talking about the inbox, they're like, I get this like dump and I have to go one by one by one, but the message number 17 might be like an emergency and I might not get to it till later in the day. Is there at least a way that we could prioritize? And at the time, the EMR vendor we were working with was like, no, that's not really on the roadmap soon. Well, I think it is now. I mean, I think it is going to be something, I think it is something they're already like experimenting with because I mean, that's not only a quality of care issue, but um, it's a provider. Like that's one of the things that drives burnout. So those types of things, the intake. Okay. Like the form we've got to have, like, I just had this experience. I'm I'm going through a, a health issue that I'm dealing with and I had to go to three different types of physicians in preparation. And at each one, I had to fill out a paper form. And the paper form had the same information, like pretty much on all three of the forms. One of, well, no, one of them was an online form. Sorry. One of them did an online form and the rest of it was paper forms. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Okay. First of all, like 
half the time, nobody even looks at what's on those forms. And granted, we still have paper forms in my clinic too, but the intake process and the intake experience should be a dynamic experience. And we should be able to like collect the information from the patient in an almost like automated self-service way. Like, I don't think you necessarily have to have an MA or a human to do all of that. And then organize that intake information in a way that, that makes it easy for us to ingest it and evaluate it and see the things that are really important and impactful and meaningful for us to see. Another example is like, if I see a patient now and they have changed like six of their medications, like they stopped taking their, I don't know, their fish oil gummies and their, their toenail fungus cream. And like, it's like three clicks or something for each one of these. So if there's six of them, it's like 18 clicks. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm an OBGYN. I don't care about your toenail fungus or your fish oil gummies. Like to some extent, like, can we make this easier for people? Like, <laughs> it's just, I should not have to click 18 times. So it's stupid stuff like that, where the EMRs were not designed in the way the MedPro was designed. It wasn't designed around UX and user experience. One of the other things I think has huge promise, and I know it has a long way to go, and you did a post about it just uh, this last week, Josh, and on LinkedIn is about Ambient. I mean, there's no question that Ambient needs to mature, but I see huge promise. Like maybe I can just automatically voice say, like I accept all of these medication changes instead of 18 clicks, right? Like, wouldn't that be amazing? And the technology is there. We just need to like program it in the right way. So, and prioritize it as the right work to do. I think you're right. I think voice is going to have a huge impact on just streamlining so many workflows. I mean, you can just even be on the go while talking and those actions taken. What's funny is that when you talked about being able to prioritize the inbox, I was even thinking like, wait, even in my own personal email inbox, I don't think I have like prioritization yet for some reason and that that does exist doesn't it i don't know but but it you're does. right there's a new there's a new product and i don't want to sound like a microsoft advertisement here but <laughs> microsoft just released the microsoft co-pilot and i got early access to it though i think if you're like early access to it at providence it is the coolest thing ever <laughs> yeah you should uh, check it out if i'm sure there's other products like that but that's that's that it, they can do that with your inbox with your meetings with your they can take documents and convert it into a PowerPoint for you. Awesome. It's, it's going to be it, pretty game changing. I can't wait for Copilot to write all my emails and take and eventually take all my meetings for me. <laughs> right. It's, that's amazing. That's exciting. Well, I mean, just being mindful of your time, we could probably talk to you for another like three hours uh, on all <laughs> this stuff, but we do want to be mindful. So let's flip over to the Fast Five lightning round. Five quick questions to get to know you better. The first question that we have is, what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? My favorite book right now is this book called Cutting for Stone by Abraham Verghese. And actually, I really like all of his books. He is mm. just so eloquent and it's such a beautiful story. And it kind of goes back to the fact that like I am really a surgeon at heart. You know, I talk about all these other things that I'm involved in and doing, but like it's a story it takes place starting in Africa and ends up in the United States. But just I love period pieces. I love like historical biographies that are fictional even sometimes. And so and I love character development. And I just really think that he does a, a beautiful job of describing what it's like to practice medicine during that time in that place right. with really amazing characters. Wow. Awesome. 
Question two, who is a person, either dead or alive, you'd love to meet? So it needs to be more than meeting, okay? Because I've met plenty of famous people. I lived in, I did my residency in Hollywood. Like, I met all kinds of famous people. They're not usually interested in talking to you or to me, right? So it has to be a conversation or breaking bread or even a friendship. So if I could be friends with somebody, Steve Jobs, by far, if dead, Steve Jobs, his obsession with usability, user experience for his products and services are just unmatched. And I'd love to learn more from him, bounce ideas off of him. He had grit and he experienced a complete downfall and then just rose up from it. And yeah, I, I know I heard he was kind of a jerk too, but like what billionaires aren't. Yeah. And if I can meet somebody that's alive, I'm just going to put a plug in for the fact that I, this summer, became a Swifty that's with my 11 year old daughter. <laughs> And we would love to meet Taylor Swift. That's awesome. We'll have her <laughs> on next episode. I she listened. Yeah. <laughs> she, she's an avid listener. That's awesome. Question three, Evie, is a bit different. Would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? So I have no idea what I would do with physical superpowers like strength and speed. And I make no qualms to dream about being an Olympic medalist <laughs> in swimming these days. So I would want to be able to read people's minds because I think awesome. that could be very useful. Definitely. <laughs> All right. Question four. What is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? Well, I'm a surgeon at heart. I think I said that before. And I think the way that we train surgeons is insane. And I think patients would be shocked to know what it is like. So much of our training is subjective. It's lacking in meaningful data, and it's driven by very subjective feedback. And having trained, onboarded, managed many surgical specialists in my career with variation in skill set, capabilities, qualities, and outcomes, it's pretty shocking. But I think there's a lot of emerging technology, and people don't talk about this at the digital health conferences or the virtual conferences, but I nerd out on it all the time. I think there is going to be a huge transformation in our approach to surgical training, and there's some really cool platforms out there that are doing some very interesting things. And I think there'll be more to come on this, but I believe there's a huge shift that's going to be happening in surgical training in a positive way coming over time. Awesome. Uh, last question that we have, if you could travel back in time to any event or moment, what would it be and why? I had a really hard time with this question because I don't know if you noticed, but like back in time, like things weren't so great for women, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, I don't think I would want to go back when there was like no plumbing or like tampons weren't invented or like, I don't know. I don't know if I could do it, but I'm a little bit of a history, history buff. I'm also sort of like a news, like I watch the news a lot and I'm like paying attention to what's going on in the news. I get anxiety. I think about a lot of the things that are happening in the world. And then I talk to my mom and she'll be like, oh, it's nothing like what happened during the Bay of Pigs or when Nixon resigned or something. And I'm like, maybe if I went back in time and like experienced what it was like when all those things were happening, happening, I wouldn't be as freaked out about whether or not Donald Trump will be president of the United States. (laughs) So I don't know. Yeah, yeah but I guess if I was going to go back in time, I'd go back to maybe a, a crisis moment to experience what it was like and know that the U.S. and the country was able to like overcome and move on. Yeah, no, I love it. <laughs> that's very funny. <laughs> well, that's awesome. That's all the time that we have, Evie. I wish we had more time because I have a thousand more questions to ask, but I'm so grateful for you spending some time with us today and sharing a little bit of what's going on in your world and some of the insights that you've picked up along the way. 
So that is a wrap for this episode of The Digital Patient, hosted by CMOS7D. You can follow us on Twitter at CMOS7D. And if you like the podcast, you want to learn more, visit www.cmos.md. Evie, Dr. Cunningham, again, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.